Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the one, the only, Dan Z, and I are recording the show on Wednesday, March 27th, which is just a few days after Dan ventured to the Windy City on, let's call it a scouting mission. It was, yes, it was a scouting mission. You were telling me, what, it's a three or four hour drive? And it's about two and a half oh, for okay. me, which right. isn't too bad at all, really. I've done it so many times that mm-hmm. I can practically do it in my sleep, although I don't recommend that. Okay. You went to McCormick Place, which is where Celebration is going to be held this year? or Yep, it, that's where Celebration is going to be this. I went last weekend because C2E2 was going on. I was bringing my son back up to school mm-hmm. anyway because he goes up in Chicago. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Why don't I just go to McCormick Place and I'll take some pictures? And I thought, well, no, I don't need to take pictures. I can do more than that because I can actually go inside the convention. So I got a one-day ticket. And I spent about eight hours walking around McCormick Place so I get my lay of the land for celebration. I've done enough of the Comic-Cons and, you know, and especially the, the thing is at least you have the benefit with San Diego Comic-Con is that it's staying in the same place. Now, mind you, as the years go by, you know, it, it, they begin to go with the satellite or the campus concept. So, you know, suddenly there were events outside of the, the actual convention center and there, there were hotels to go to and restaurants to go to. And you always had to sort of up your game. But with Celebration, just the fact that they move it around from year to year. And McCormick Place, where is that in, in relation to, you know, the heart of the city? It basically is smack dab in the heart of the city. You are you're next to Shedd Aquarium, Soldier Field. Mm-hmm. The Science and Industry Museum, uh, Field Museum is right there too. You uh, are, are fairly close. You're in a, a very quick cab ride over to the Magnificent Mile and and uh, Michigan Avenue, where all the famous shopping is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are smack dab in Chicago, Illinois. I mean, I mean, where I parked mm-hmm. to go to C2E2 was the same exact parking lot I use when I go to Chicago Bears football games. It's right there. Okay. Speaking of which, though, you had an interesting conversation and a piece of advice from from the nice young lady who was running the parking lot, right? Yeah. In essence, um, don't park here. Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy. I had to follow extended signs. Now, mind you, I got there. I went there very leisurely. I wasn't worried about getting into C two E two specifically to see anything. I just wanted to scout around. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get there at peak time when everybody was queuing up to get inside the actual convention itself. Mm -hmm. So I got there a little bit after lunchtime, and it took me an hour to park. Mm -hmm. And this was well after everyone was already inside the convention. Because you have to turn, uh, let's see, you have to turn east, and you just follow the signs. And it's all very well clearly labeled. But, Mm -hmm. you know, this I mean, this is, you're talking about Chicago is the third largest city in the United States of America. And... It's got wonderful public transportation. In fact, there are plenty of trains, elevated trains that drop you off right at McCormick Place. So it's very, very easy as far mm-hmm. as that goes. But she suggested if if I did park, there are shuttles that can take you to the convention, but you can you're just as easy off to walk. Here's what I'm going to suggest to people: if you are going to Celebration Chicago, you're most likely staying in a hotel unless you have people that you know. A lot of the hotels for Celebration there are shuttles. And you can find on StarWarsCelebration.com, you can find the listing of all the shuttles when they bring you to over to the convention center. There basically is a shift in the mornings and a shift in the afternoons. But I would highly suggest if you go that you don't rent a car. Mm-hmm. If you don't rent a car, you don't have to worry about parking. And if you do have a car and you need to park at your hotel, the hotel I'm staying at, for example, is $65 a night to park. Mm-hmm. Just to park. Oh, now, I'm not planning on driving around the city when I'm there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you need to get there. So what, we're, what my friends and I are doing is we are going to a train station, which is about 30 miles from where I live. Mm-hmm. And we're taking the train to Chicago and then just kind of taking an Uber to where we need to get to. Because parking is very expensive and will take a majority of your time. That's one of the biggest takeaways. I've certainly got plenty of others if you want me to go into that. But the, the no, parking absolutely. thing is big. I mean, I spent a relatively short amount of time in Chicago, but I would think... 
there were things I definitely wanted to do. For example, I'm a huge comedy fan, so I had to go to Second City. Second City. And sure. uh, speaking of which, Second City is supposedly doing a special Star Wars-themed show over the celebration weekend. So that, that should... Rogue Pun, I believe it's called. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I love those That's guys. That's right. See, now here's the mistake I made, though. When I went to Chicago, Dan, looked at the map and said, oh, it's only so many blocks. I can walk from my hotel to Second City. And I had failed to take into consideration the Chicago fire, which, you know, when they flattened the city, when they rebuilt it, they built big, honking Chicago-style blocks. Oh, yes. Compared to the cute little pseudo-European Boston blocks, you know, I said, oh, it's 30 blocks. <laughs> I can walk to Second City. And two and a half hours later, when I arrived there, <laughs> nearly dead, I'm a moron. So, yes, and please take into consideration that Chicago is the city of big shoulders and big blocks, right? That's right. It's it's our kind of town, but not if you are not like to walk a lot. All right. Factor in the whole $65 to park type thing and... Depending on your hotel, and sixty-five might be the average. Yeah. In some places, really, really, they don't. They don't. Even if you are staying, if you want to visit, they still charge you to park. So it's and there's parking meters everywhere. And I can tell you from a lot of experience, if you miss paying that meter by you know thirty seconds, you're getting a ticket. Yeah. They are not going to miss that. Okay. Let's talk about actually getting into McCormick Place right. and getting the lay of the land there. You had access to, what, the early layout of the event, that sort of thing, so you could suss out where, for example, Celebration Stage and that sort of thing was. And Yeah, the Wind Trust Arena is the major one. Mm-hmm. Here's something Here's something entertaining, and I have a huge... If, you, if you're familiar with Instagram, mm-hmm. on when you go to someone's Instagram, if you go to Coffee with Kenobi's Instagram on our homepage, for that, there are a number of stories that you can save, and you can look at the stories and watch the video and the, my different commentary on a number of things. I spent a lot of time on it. Here's where irony comes into play, though, Mm -hmm. which as an English teacher, which is my day job, I really do appreciate, even though if I didn't in the moment, I spent probably three hours, three and a half hours scoping out this room, Mm -hmm. mapping how long it took to get from one place to the other, testing the Wi-Fi, paying particular note of the temperatures and how they fluctuate in the room. And then I went and talked to Joe Caroni, who was a Star Wars illustrator. He was on a coffee with Kenobi about a month ago, Mm -hmm. and we were talking about it, and he said, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, we've been walking around this place too. And by the way, this room that we're in now, this isn't even where Celebration is. It's actually in the next building in McCormick Place. Oh, I was in the room that was gigantic, and I mean, the, maybe the biggest convention center I've ever been in. And mm-hmm. I've been to San Diego Comic Con. Okay, it wasn't even where Celebration's going to be. It's at it's at the the other side. It's the western side mm-hmm. of McCormick Place, McCormick West. I was in McCormick South, so I thought, oh my goodness. This is just a taste. So I walked around even more. I tried to kind of maneuver around and charm my way through the other parts of the building, and I was able to do that. Mm-hmm. I was able to see where the Celebration uh, podcasting meetup is going to be on that Saturday, the 14th. And then I wanted to go over and see where the Celebration podcast stage is going to be, because we're going to be on that, of course, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting, because you have to basically go over and around. Uh, the first floor is expansive, but to get from one side to the other, you have to go up two flights of stairs, walk across uh, a substantial amount of space, walk down two more flights of stairs, and then be on the other side of the first floor because there's no actual pathway that walks you all the way around. So get ready to bring some breadcrumbs, kids, because you're going to need them. For me, that's always the frustration of that first day where you're just trying to sort of suss out how to get to places and that sort of thing. And first day is when they have the episode 9 presentation with Fashion is must-see. Looking over the schedule, they aren't kidding around. I mean, it's just, at least with San Diego Comic-Con, by the time the last day rolls around, you're like, okay, we're kind of at running on fumes when it comes to panels. This is really not the case with this year's celebration. I mean, Friday we start off with the big episode 9 panel, then Saturday, it's the must-see for us because it, it's Galaxy's yeah. Edge, you know, the making of oh, yeah. Galaxy's Edge. And and then Sunday, it's a twofer. It's it's the Mandalorian panel, which at least this one's being streamed. So the, at least the, the folks who weren't able to actually get to Celebration can see this one. Likewise, I believe the Clone Wars sneak 
is also supposed to be streamed, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah I don't know if they if they officially announced that they're going to do that yet. I was l- reading something earlier today that suggested that was the plan. It makes sense to me. Okay. And then Monday, we have the Phantom Menace 20th, which I'm going to remember the initial reception. And then what's been fascinating is to watch the Star Wars fans were, that was my first Star Wars movie. And of course I loved it. As they became adults, you know, they became defenders. And it's been kind of fun to watch people, you know, have to go back and revisit how they feel about that film. Oh, and and I can honestly say, and I think I've said this on the show before, I certainly have on Coffee with Kenobi, but my students love that movie because that's kind of the movie that brought them in. Mm -hmm. And some of their parents too, which makes me feel older. But yeah, I got over it already. It's just that I'm more experienced. That's what we're going to go with. Okay. So, I mean, it's a a very fun movie, and I'm pretty sure that we're going to see, and Liam Neeson has never actually personally been to Celebration. Mm -hmm. He's recorded video for some of them. Mm -hmm. But Ahmad Best is going to be there, and I think... He's finally going to get the Star Wars welcome that he deserves because he had a horrible, horrible experience post Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones with um, the way he was treated. Yeah. And and he went into some serious depression, a very horrible serious depression. Mm -hmm. And he's come out of it stronger. He's a dad. And I think he's very kind of an inspirational guy. So it's going to be nice to see him there. Uh, you mentioned the Clone Wars panel, too. Mm-hmm. And, we get, of course, we can't forget the panels that you and I are going to be on. I, I know we're going to talk about that, too. This is true. Now, I guess those are the big ones. And, and you know, in much in the sort of the San Diego Hall H, you know, there's going to be the, the challenges yeah. of getting into these giant panels. Is an old hand here? Any suggestions? The panels themselves, this is the big thing. Mm-hmm. This is the thing that has caused a lot of excitement and angst simultaneously for people but for as long as I've been going to celebrations, you if you wanted to go see the big stuff, you had to go and you had to wait in line overnight to get a chance to get into these panels. You know, for 2015 in Anaheim, Kathleen Kennedy and J.J. Abrams ordered a bunch of pizzas for everybody mm-hmm. while they were waiting in line in Great Bill. For 2017 in The Last Jedi, Ryan Johnson went around and took pictures of everybody waiting in line and talked to everybody and thanked them, which I think is really well, well, well above and beyond what mm-hmm. most directors would do. It shows you what kind of guy that he is, and I've heard, and I think I've said this before as well, I've heard how many, how much the people at Lucasfilm absolutely love and adore Ryan Johnson, the kind of man that he is, the kind of care he puts in the craft, so that's great. But here's the thing, Corey and I went, we waited in line, We I think we got in line at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we still didn't get in. Mm. And, I, you know, we were very tired the next day, and I just kept thinking... There's got to be a better way. There has got to be a better way than staying, you know, who wants to sleep on a on a concrete slab mm-hmm. all night for the 50-50 chance that you might get to go in the room that you want to be in. Mm-hmm. So what they have done this year is they have created a light speed experience. It's a light speed virtual panel reservations and light speed lane virtual queuing system. Think Geek is actually the people that are help powering it. And what you do is when you get your badge and you get your confirmation, you have an email address that is now linked to your badge. You get onto the web page, and you put that in, and you have, I think, about mm, a week to do it, maybe a little bit less to put that in. You're automatically entered into a virtual queue. So before you get to celebration, if you get picked for these panels, and you can opt to get into the virtual queue for every single panel of the major panels that they have, then you will know when you get there that you're getting in. And they also will give you a time frame when you can show up. And then when you show up at that time, you're able to go inside and get your seat. Hmm. So it's quite phenomenal. I mean, it's it's basically like the fast pass system. You know, it's not a magic band exactly, but it's pretty darn close. And today was the first day, and we're recording this on March 27th. Today is the first day that they're having this virtual queue for these stores, for the Funko Pop exclusives, for the Hasbro exclusives, for the Lego exclusives, and then later on in the week is when you can queue up for the main panels. I love it. Mm -hmm. Another big problem with Celebration has traditionally been the store. Mm -hmm. Getting into the store is often a four-hour process. By the time you get into your store, there's no guarantee that they'll have the items you want or the sizes that you need them in. Mm-hmm. And then after you get them, you have to wait about 45 minutes to an hour just to check out. 
So to say it's an unmitigated disaster would probably be uh, too pleasant of a thing to say. Mm -hmm. So now with this, in addition to reserving your panels, in addition to putting your name in, or your hat into the ring to get the Funko exclusives, the Hasbro exclusives, the Lego exclusives, you also have a time where you can register to get into the Celebration store. And I even read that you can pre-order your merchandise and then come by and pick it up. So they're basically guaranteeing that people can have more opportunities, whether you're a night owl or some sort of a Navy SEAL and you want to wait in line all night on a concrete slab or not. Not everybody's still happy about this. Some people are saying that they wish that they didn't reserve. Uh, some people are coming, of course, across the pond to come to this, and they're saying they wish they didn't do it because they didn't know that they would be guaranteed to get in. But honestly, I don't know if you could ever say that you were guaranteed to get in. Some security guards don't even let you wait overnight anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think this is really the best way to really make this happen. I'm, I'm quite excited about it. I think it's very bold. Here's hoping that it works. And this is the first celebration with the system in place? Or? It's the first one, but Reed Pop is the people that are helping run celebration. Pretty sure they did this at New York Comic Con. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar thing for the major panels. And, and I didn't hear anyone say that it didn't work. I didn't hear anyone say that it did. But as you know, you know, the negative news or the bad news often travels quite quickly. Yeah. So I, I, I feel optimistic about it. I mean, I've had to work a lot with Lucasfilm closely for certain things and making sure that people get their badges on my team and, mm. uh, of course, other things for the panels and stuff like that. And they have been nothing but wonderful to me and very, very helpful. And so we'll know more, of course, when we're actually on site. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know about you, Jim, but I like knowing that when I get there, I'm going to get to go into this main room or I'm going to get to go into another room and watch it streamed. Because if I'm not, then why don't I just go to the show floor and just find a comfortable place to check things out while everything's going on. So now at least we'll get to know. Uh, for someone like yourself who has a foot in both worlds, I mean, you, you're you there as a fan, because obviously, you know, you you love all things Star Wars, but at the same time, you're the professional who's actually also covering the event. So it's it's sometimes hard to wear both hats. Yeah, it can, it can be tricky. When you've been to enough of these, you also tend to grade on a curve, because you, you, know, you know going into it that there's no realistic... Yeah. In fact, that's the thing. I, I always tell folks who are going... To San Diego Comic Con or WonderCon or even the D23 Expo, it's like you have to go in with realistic expectations. And no matter how well you plan, no matter how much stuff you've reserved in advance and, and everything you set up, you're never going to get everything you want. If you're lucky, you'll get most. But it's important to have, I think, a realistic attitude. Also, understand that this is four days of. Being on your feet, moving through giant crowds, it can really put a lot of wear and tear on you. So you have to know your limits. You have to know your limits. You need to bring comfortable shoes. Oh, yeah, yeah. You got to be really realistic about that. And I mean, I put probably Mm 12,000, 13,000 steps in a couple hours. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not sponsored by these guys, but I wear Merrill's shoes when I'm going to be doing a lot of walking and my feet never hurt the next day. I've seen a lot of, there's even a, a stars.com has this wonderful article about tips. Mm-hmm. And one of their tips is to bring an extra pair of shoes and band-aids because you're going to get blisters. And that's certainly the case unless you get something that you know is much more comfortable. The temperature thing, I want to get to this really quickly too. The mm-hmm. temperature thing is certainly a factor. I mean, this is Chicago, right? This is Illinois where I live. Yep. This In the mornings I wake up and there's frost on the ground. Mm-hmm today around lunchtime it was uh, 60 degrees and then tonight is freezing again and i have to put a coat back on yeah. so you don't really know what the weather's going to be like outside getting into the convention but inside there were certain sections of the convention floor i thought were very hot mm-hmm. and warm and kind of balmy and then there were other places that were really really chilly so yeah. i'd bring a hoodie or something in a backpack mm-hmm. and just be ready to do a lot of changing mm-hmm. think clark kent yeah with the convention center with Tens of thousands of people milling about. I mean, that's the thing. You have air conditioners set on stun and a couple, (laughs) you know. uh, And then, again, just when you're standing in line with that many people, it can get really warm. So just be realistic. I'm, You know, for so many people, it's going to be, oh, I'm in, you know, I'm there for celebration. And I'm also in Chicago. 
I want to see some of the city. I want to go to the Billy Goat Tavern and have a cheese boogie, cheese boogie, cheese boogie. Oh, that's right. Smiling Goat. And those are great, too, by the way. They are. They are. It's well worth going there. But just be realistic. And, and also, don't be so laser focused on, I must get yeah. the toy or I must get to this panel that you miss the very cool things that are happening around you, the wonderful cosplay or the friends that you can make at, at events like this if you actually open yourself up to the people around you. I mean, you get in a line and you're suddenly face down on your phone, probably spend more time in a line conversing with somebody who's a thousand miles away about, well, what's going on at Celebration? I heard this great uh, Seinfeld thing where he said, uh, I went out to lunch with my friend mm -hmm. And I halfway early on in the lunch, I realized if I wanted to talk to him, I had to go across the street and get on my phone because sitting across the table from him wasn't seeming to get his attention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For folks who aren't there, the fact that you know there are people taking pictures and you know putting them on Instagram or sharing yeah. them through Twitter or that sort of thing, it's it's wonderful. But try to balance. Try to to try to actually be there and enjoy it. And you're totally right. This, I've met more awesome people waiting in these lines and just talking to people on the convention floor and, and, and running coffee with Kenobi certainly opened up some great doors for me too. And, and it's great because if someone knows me already or whether they don't, it's a great opportunity to make a new friend. Mm -hmm. And because you're all there for the same reason, the love of Star Wars and this amazing franchise that Lucasfilm has created and it's great because you, you can unabashedly geek out. Just don't forget that there are going to be times when you have to use the bathroom and still eat. Because the first celebration I went to, I forgot about that until about eight hours in. I thought, oh, no, I feel strange. Why not? Oh, I haven't eaten or went to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those are important. Uh, very, very important. Okay, so we, we've talked about the big panels. Are, are there any smaller panels or things that you would suggest folks check out while they were there? I mean, the Fridays... The ILM Making Solo panel with, with Rob Bredlow. Again, I'm very much looking forward to this book. I'd love to check out that presentation. Do you have a, a panel you'd particularly like people to check out? I would, and I, I would think you would too, because you and I are going to be doing this panel oh, together. that's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's that. It's called Covering Star Wars. It is on Friday, April 12th on the fan stage from 6.30 to 7.15 and it's hosted by myself and ABC's Clayton Sandell. And we are basically going to be talking about covering Star Wars from a number of different perspectives and mediums. Also joining us on this panel are Anthony Bresnikan from Entertainment Weekly, Amy Rochelle from uh, She's 365 Star Wars, and then a certain guy that's near and dear to many of our hearts, a blogger and theme park historian is how we have you titled, Mr. Jim Hill of the Disney Dish. So we're going to be up on stage talking, sharing some stories, giving tips, hopefully some inspiring things, making you laugh, making you be entertained. This is the panel for you if you're interested in Star Wars and covering Star Wars. I'm, I'm excited to be on a, on a panel with you. It was very sweet of you to invite me. I, I just, though, when I, I think of who else I'm on stage with here, I, again, the, the old Sesame Street song of one of these things is not like the other. I will try to hold up my end, I guess. I have nothing but faith in you. All right. Well, that makes one of us. So so that's there's that one. And then I'm also doing one with Clayton, the mythology of Star Wars behind the facts and the fiction. I'm going to be looking at the mythology of Star Wars from literary and historical perspective. And Clayton is going to be looking at it from a nonfiction perspective behind the camera. The two of us are just going to be talking. That's on Monday, April 15th from 345 to 430 on the Star Wars University stage. And that is going to be a blast as well. And then, of course, you can always find us, Coffee with Kenobi, on the Celebration podcast stage. And we are going to be doing that one on, I believe it is Sunday. Yeah, Sunday, April 14th from 1 o'clock to 1.45, level 1, W193AB, McCormick Place West. And I have seen the room now. It's quite spacious, but I think there's only about 300 seats and it is first come, first serve. No uh, no virtual queue for that. So if you are interested, you definitely want to get there early. And, I'm, and as far as I know, at least at the time of this recording, we're going to have a very special guest who I can't announce yet. But this is a person that's very near and dear to Star Wars fans. So this could be pretty great. Wow. Okay. And having, in fact, I think the very first time you and I met face to face was when you were on the podcast stage at the 2015 celebration at Anaheim. 
That's right. And that was only just kind of a wave in from from I wave to you from the mm-hmm. stage. And then we didn't get a chance to meet up until uh, we actually got to shake hands for the first time at the the media event for The Last Jedi Incarnation of Star Tours. That media event. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. And, and I will tell you from having been in the room with Dan while he does a podcast, it gets crowded. People turn out for the show. So make sure to show up on time or get there early. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll miss out on the fun. Now, you were mentioning just a moment ago, fact and fiction. And and interesting thing is I have spent the last couple of days drilling down into the backstory of Captain EO, which was the very first thing that George Lucas did for the Walt Disney Company after Michael Eisner took over at CEO. And lots and lots of stories here, which we'll get to after this commercial break. kind of interesting to step into the subject on the heels of the Finding Neverland documentary that uh, just recently aired on HBO. Because, frankly, there's a lot of people who probably will have watched that and wondered, how is it that the Walt Disney Company, or George Lucas for that matter, could, you know, have been involved with Michael Jackson? Uh, You know, and we're looking at this story from 2019, whereas if you go all the way back 30 years ago to 1979, oh, when this all actually started, first of all, we're some 15 years out from the very first allegations being a, a way late on, on Michael. And if you're looking back at August of 1979, here's this 20-year-old guy, or 21-year-old guy, he's just released his fifth solo album, Off the Wall, uh, which sells 20 million copies worldwide. And here is this huge, young African-American performer. And here's the Lily White Disney Company, who are desperate to have teens and young people think of the Disney theme parks as cool. And here is Michael Jackson, who loves the Disney theme parks. Which is why in, in March of 1980, there's a special Craft Salutes Disneyland's 25th anniversary airs on CBS, and the last five minutes of this, you have to go on YouTube and watch this, because it's Michael in a bright orange sweater dancing with the walk-around Disney characters basically through the entire park to a, a medley of When You Wish Upon a Star, We're Off to See the Wizard, and Ease on Down the Road from the Wiz. And and I have to tell you, from again, you know, we were, we were talking about you know, me going cross-country on Amtrak and being out there for Disneyland's 30th anniversary. From talking with friends who were there for the 25th, they were thrilled that Michael agreed to do this. You know, because again, it was like, you know, the cool guy wants to be in a Disney special. You know, the the kid with the, the who sold 20 million records. And while we're talking about 1979, 1980, um, you know, November of 1979, this is when Michael Eisner, who at that time is the president of Paramount Pictures, uh, brokers a deal between that studio, Steven Spielberg, and George Lucas, which will allow production of Raiders to go forward. And Dan, I came across, you know, what's so bizarre about when you drill down into the press accounts, Back then, from you know, you know, this is when they hadn't cast uh, Harrison Ford yet. They're talking to Tom Selleck about playing Indy. But the more interesting thing is the original deal that Eisner cut uh, was you know he just in, and in order to get his his bosses to get on board with funding this twenty million dollar film is they had to agree to make four sequels and we're going to finally get the fourth sequel in July of 2021 when, when Indy five comes out. So, um, Hey, it only took 30 years. Yeah. What's the hurry? Or actually 40 years. Good Lord. Because so few studios and they took this to everybody. I actually found evidence that they took it to Disney and even Disney took a pass on it because so, so many of the other studios in Hollywood had taken a pass on the project. Spielberg and Lucas felt indebted to Eisner. And Michael would eventually call in that marker. But before that could happen, George Lucas 
and Steven Spielberg, who already were titans in modern Hollywood, thanks to, you know, Jaws in 1975 for Steven and the original Star Wars in 77 for George. But if you think about the period we're talking about here, in 1980, the number one film in the country was Star Wars Episode V of The Empire Strikes Back. And then in 81, it was Raiders. And then in 82, it was E.T., the, the extraterrestrial. And then in 83, it was Return of the Jedi. And they so when they weren't passing the number one box office baton back and forth between each other, you know, they were actually sharing it. I mean, the, this was a spectacular four-year run and but where it gets kind of interesting is in 82 again that's the summer of the extraterrestrial the the et and so it comes out and everybody's looking to you know i mean there was a certain amount of merch that had been prepped but they just weren't ready for as crazy as people got about this and so in november of 1982 they put out a storyteller album and what's kind of bizarre about the Storyteller album is who they got to narrate the album, which was Michael Jackson. Oh, man. Well, that's, that's going to be yeah, it, well, it, it, and But the thing is that Spielberg himself selected Michael because he's like, well, he's just a big kid. He's, you know, he's kind of, you know, unusual looking. And, and you know, he'd be, you know, the perfect guy to, to, to describe the story of, E.T. and Elliot, and that same month, all right, the, the E.T. Storyteller album comes out in on November 7th of 1982. Thriller comes out November 30th. And evidently Epic Records, which was the folks who were releasing Thriller, you know, they, they were like, hey, wait a minute, Michael, did you check your contract? Because we're, we're supposed to have the exclusive rights to whatever recording you release in 1982. So this storyteller album is actually had to be pulled off the market and it's actually a, a fairly rare collectible at this point so if you you manage to score one be excited i you know i don't i don't know if it's, it's holding its value in the wake of finding neverland but right i know what you're saying anyway thriller obviously everybody knows about thriller this was the uh and still to this day is the highest selling album in the history of, of music. There's an estimated 66 million copies of this thing sold worldwide. And a lot of those copies were sold on the back of the uh, thriller music video that, that John Landis directed that actually came out a year and a month after uh, the album came out. It, it debuted on MTV in December of 1983 and MTV went live in 1981 but really didn't become a pop phenomena you know sort of a white hot center of pop culture till 83 and didn't really come on hollywood's radar until april of 83 and that was when flash dance came out which was a, a movie that paramount released under during the time when michael eisner is president of, of that company and i you know there were two music videos uh, associated with that film uh the flash dance theme song oh what a feeling and maniac that went into heavy rotation on mtv and as a direct result this movie which only cost seven million dollars to make wound up grossing 200 million worldwide which in today's money is is a half a billion dollars and Michael Eisner was hailed as a genius because, you know, he was the one, you know, while he was president at, at Paramount, who had, you know, okay, we have this movie and we should push it, you know, help use MTV to push it. And meanwhile, we jump ahead a few months and here's the Walt Disney Company, which is under siege by green mailers like Saul Steinberg, Ivan Boski, and Erwin Jacobs. And after months and months of bad publicity, the Disney board of directors decide something has to be done to right the ship, which is why September 7th of 1984, Ron Miller is forced to resign as head of Walt Disney Productions and who campaigns to replace uh, Mr. Miller, but Michael Eisner. And this is when Michael calls in that marker with George and uh, Stephen, and he has them call individual members of the Disney board and basically say, look, if you hire Michael Eisner, we have made movies with him over at Paramount. 
we like Michael. We will come here and work for Disney if he's the chairman and CEO. And that that actually was um, one of the factors that one of the real significant factors that get Michael the gig, the notion that, wow, you know, if he's in charge, we'll have uh, Steven Spielberg, we'll have George Lucas. But the thing was that the board was like, okay, we'll get you this gig, but you have to turn this situation around fast. You know, you have to do something. So again, Michael gets the job September 30th, 1984. And What's going on in pop culture at that time is Michael Jackson and his brothers are traveling around the country doing their victory tour. This is built off of the success of Thriller. This is, and the tour ends in Los Angeles with a six, a six night run at LA's Dodger Stadium. And one in, one night at Dodger Stadium, Michael Eisner shows up backstage and asks to meet with Mike, uh, Michael Jackson. Once Michael learned, or, or Michael Eisner learns something, learns a trick, he, he doesn't let go of it, and it's like, okay. So Flashdance became a hit because we did music videos. And so what he does to Michael, knowing that Michael is a huge fan of the Disney theme parks and would love to be a part of that, says, hey, Michael, how would you feel about making a 4D music video that we then play in a special theater that people could only see if they went to a Disney theme park? And... As a huge fan of the Disney parks, he was immediately on board with the idea. Just loved it. But he had conditions. The conditions were, I want this to be a significant production, which is why I want George Lucas to produce it, and I want Steven Spielberg to direct it. And there was only one problem with, with Michael's plan, or, or Michael Jackson's plan, which was that in July of that year, Steven Spielberg had signed a $750,000 deal with NBC to produce a, a television show for that network, Amazing Stories. Just this week, Apple announced its new subscription streaming service, and one of the things they'll be offering on this is a revival of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories series, which only ran for two years on NBC, but it had a couple of uh, enough strong episodes that people look back fondly on it now. More to the point, Michael had already also agreed to start shooting The Color Purple with Whoopi Goldberg in the summer of 1985. They were going to be all the way over in North Carolina, so there was just no way that the whole George Lucas is going to produce and Steven Spielberg's directing is going to happen. But, but George had just finished doing Return of the Jedi, and it had been a continual 10-year slog for him from when A New Hope had begun production. And after a decade of doing this, he was he was anxious to do new things. And it's like, all right, sure, I'll make a music video with Michael Jackson, but we need a director, and I know a guy. And the guy he knew was his longtime friend, Francis Ford Coppola, the director of the Godfather and Apocalypse Now. And the problem is at this point in, in Francis's career, he's coming off of a series of box office disappointments like the Cotton Club and One from the Heart. And more to the point, he's drowning in debt because his Zoetrope Studios, which had, you know, in fact, the, the irony is if Zoetrope were around today, given, you know, all of the amazing technology that it introduced, it, it would have been state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, but back then, people just weren't ready, and it, uh, he was forced uh, to, to actually sell the whole studio off in 1983. So, and Lucas just basically made it a term of of coming on board and doing Captain EO for the parks. That you know, you have to hire Francis, you have to hire my friend. Now, mind you, at that point, Captain EO wasn't called Captain EO; it was called the Intergalactic Music Man. The meetings for this evidently got really strange because, again, remember, Michael is under tremendous pressure to get people to come to the parks and to make the parks make more money. And so, you know, one of the very first notes that Disney gave to George Lucas and, and Michael Jackson was that whatever we're making is going to have a lot of cute, cuddly characters in it, right? You know, because we, we have to recover all that money we spent, you know, we paid the green mailers to go away. So that's why we, you know, if you look at uh, Captain EO today, that's why we have 
OD, that the OD and ID. That's why we have Major Domo. That's why we have Buzzball. They were looking to recover all that. But these characters weren't Star Wars characters. And, and that was because in February of 1985, at uh, the very first uh, shareholders meeting that Michael Eisner presided over as the new president or chairman and CEO of Disney, he mentioned that, hey, we've partnered with Lucasfilm and we're going to do a Star Wars themed attraction for the parks. So, you know, right off the bat, it's like, okay, Captain EO is one thing and the Star Wars attraction is another thing. But over time, Captain EO began to get Star Wars like, Star Wars adjacent. I don't know quite what, you know, the way this is supposed to go. But in the meantime, again, it, it became apparent that it was going to take between post-production and effects work and that sort of thing. They were at least a year out before this thing could appear in the parks. So in the meantime, again, this is Michael Jackson. Me, this is Michael Eisner uh, waiting for his attraction with Michael Jackson, and he has to get people into the parks for the summer of 85 because Captain EO won't open until the summer of 86. So he opens in the park a place called Videopolis, which literally is where you can go and, you know, uh, it's a 5,000-square-foot dance floor. It can hold 3,000 people. Uh, there are 70 television monitors and two giant 16-foot-across video screens. And you're in there dancing to videos. You know, because, again, that's the Michael One-Trick Pony Eisner. You know, videos, videos. It's turning it's around. Now it's, all right, what about this intergalactic music man thing? What What are we calling it? And... Francis Ford, you know, during a pre-production meeting goes, you know, story that we put together so far of this is Michael is going to this twisted trash planet and bringing light and magic to this place. And in Greek, the word Eos means light and dawn. So why don't we call him Captain Eo? There is somebody who's supposed to be the leader of this twisted planet, and that is uh, the supreme leader. And... A lot of people who look at this, when they see the Supreme Leader come on screen and she's this kind of nightmarish, almost alien, Ridley Scott-type alien, Angelica Houston doesn't actually look the way uh, they had originally envisioned the character. In fact, she's not even the actress who was supposed to have played it. Uh, they originally cast Shelley Duvall to come in. And Shelley balked when they brought her in for the makeup test and they revealed that they were going to do sort of a full mask and facial appliances. And poor Shelley, as it turns out, had terrible, terrible claustrophobia. So, you know, she immediately backed out of the project and they were suddenly without a villain and they were about to begin shooting in early July. And so, but Frances knew Angelica Houston, contacted her and... She agreed at the very last moment to come in. But the interesting thing is she really put the thumbscrews to Disney and Lucasfilm. In fact, the makeup that she has basically wears in Captain EO shows her full face. It's just sort of a headpiece that she wears. And everyone pretty much assumes that if that was all that Shelley had to have worn, she would have stuck with the project. But the other thing is that Angelica Houston actually forced them to redo or rewrite the original ending for Captain EO. Because the idea was that when Captain EO brought his wave of magical light to the Supreme Leader's trash planet and turned it into a new Eden, the Supreme Leader was going to turn into this this beautiful young African-American woman. And in fact, they, they'd already hired an actress because they thought it would, he, she and Captain EO would make a lovely couple at the end of the the thing, and Angela took took one look at the storyboards and the script and said, if I'm going to spend all the time in the makeup being the ugly supreme leader, I get to be the beautiful queen at the end. You're not bringing somebody else in to play that part. And so that's what happens. Now, to get back to, to poor George Lucas, and again, remember, this is supposed to be his palate cleanser after Return of the Jedi. And, you know, and also, you got to remember that George is is also, as this is going on, ramping up to be working on Star Tours, and so they're, they're having meetings on that. And so he's, he's a very busy guy. He's also going through a divorce at this time, and it's not the happy thing that it probably should be. And more to the point, 
over time, Captain EO becomes more and more Star Wars-like. In fact, if, for example, as George would come on scene and go on the set of Captain EO's ship, and it just sort of, it looks too new. It's, you know, we've got to scratch this up a bit, we've got to junk this up a bit, and slowly it takes on the, what do they call it, Dan? Used future? Uh, like kind of used universe? Yeah, the used universe. Yeah. So suddenly it becomes that. Also, I really have to recommend this. About two years ago, three years ago, somebody put up a rough cut of Captain EO. And it, it, you can find it, just Google rough cut Captain EO. And what's fascinating about it is it's this entire film without a single special effect. When you see the transformations of, you know, from the trash people to the, the attractive dancers, it's literally done with editing. But what's especially fascinating about it is if you know the Captain EO film, the ships, which are done mostly in wireframe and some cardboard models, look vastly different than the ones in the finished film. And that's because George, after they'd cut it together, said flat out, I don't like the designs. And he reaches out to Joe Johnson and says, I, we need something better. And so, you know, as a direct result, though, the film gets closer and closer and closer to the look of Star Wars. And uh, meanwhile, the other thing, frankly, is that Francis Ford Coppola, uh, just prior to the production of Captain EO, took another job. He agreed to be the director of Peggy Sue Got Married. But the thing was that it was supposed to happen in August of 1985 but you have to understand that captain eo starts production on july 15th 1985 so literally there's this they have two weeks to get everything done and then francis has to leave and as happened with it, it every film you know in the history of hollywood it ran behind schedule and on the 14th day francis finished the last shot and said well Goodbye. And that's the part of Captain EO that particularly infuriated George Lucas was that he walked out the door to go to work on, on Peggy Sue Got Married and left behind his son Geo, who, with George's help, finished the rest of the movie. But again, now because George is so much more involved in the creation of Captain EO, what was only supposed to have 40 effect shots winds up having nearly 150 effect shots, which is why the original million dollar budget crept up to 30. And the whole time, here's Jeffrey Katzenberg, who's supposedly, you know, brand new through the door, head of Disney Studios. And he's, you know, constantly, no, no, okay, we, we have to finish this. This has to be done. And it's like, okay, you go over and tell George Lucas that we can't have more money for special effects, that we can't have more money for sets or costumes. And and Katzenberg, in every, every turn of the trail, caved. And eventually, at one point, Lucas actually brought in Tom Smith, which I know you know, Dan. I mean, this is the guy who's, you know, the, the, the master effects artist all the way back to New Hope. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they kept working on this thing right up until May of 1986. So, you know, the nine months of production on the back of that two weeks of filming. And eventually, it's way over budget and it's done, but it is done. And so September 18th of 1986, it opens at Disneyland. And everyone who's anyone in the 1980s is there out of Hollywood to see this thing. So Johnny... Jane Fonda turns up for the premiere. Uh, John Ritter turns up for the premiere. Oddly enough, Michael doesn't show up for the premiere, though. There are people at Disney to this day who swear that he was there dressed as a little old lady. And you could actually watch the premiere. There were TV specials done. I mean, they, they kept the park open for 60 hours straight the weekend that uh, Captain EO opened. At one point, there was a six-hour line that went all the way down Main Street, USA. I would love at some point to sit down with George Lucas and talk about the production of Captain EO because it just sounds like it must have been so tough. I'd love to sit down and talk with George Lucas about the phone book, <laughs> anything. <Yeah. laughs> 
I, I'm sure he has some, some substantial thoughts about that as well. But, but anyway, that's probably way more information than anybody ever wanted about Captain EO. Back in the day, they did all sorts of promotion from the mind of George Lucas. The two geniuses, Mike, George Lucas and Michael Jackson together, the folks at Lucas began to distance themselves. And in fact, when Captain EO came back into the parks after Michael's death, you barely heard the Lucasfilm connection at all. So, don't know what to tell you. But, but what I do know what to tell you is that if you've enjoyed listening to this tonight and want even more, you know, Star Wars related goodness, or for that matter, more information about what you should be doing at Celebration in just two weeks' time, they should be listening to what you've got out there on online, Dan. And can can you walk us through where folks can find you? You bet. You can find me each and every week on Coffee with Kenobi. We are halfway through our Road to Celebration shows. It is a weekly show anyway, but now it's even more intense for Celebration because that's 100% what we're talking about. One of our goals, however, is if you're not able to join us, we want you to feel like you're a part of the experience. We're going to be doing a lot of streaming, a lot of video, a lot of recording, a lot of stuff for the podcast. So we want you to feel very much like you are a part of that. If you are at Celebration, of course, as I mentioned, we've got the Covering Star Wars panel in February. I'm sorry, April 12th, Friday, April 12th, 6.30 to 7.15, hosted by myself and Jim Hill and some other awesome Star Wars reporters and influencers. And then you can find me there Monday, April 15th, from 3.45 to 4.30 at the Mythology of Star Wars Behind the Facts and Fiction panel. And then on Sunday at 1 o'clock on the podcast stage as well. Busy, busy, busy. Wow. Okay. That that's. I'm assuming, you know, on Tuesday, there's a nap that lasts till Wednesday, right? Oh, yeah, sure. I'm sure my students wouldn't mind that at all. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> that might be what they're doing when I'm talking about all these stories. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, on my side of the fence, we, we've obviously got, again, Disney Dish with Lentesta. We've got uh, Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor. We've got uh, I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. We've got the Marvel Us Disney podcast with the amazing Aaron Adams. And if you like Dan's stuff, if you like my stuff, if you could do both of us a favor and head over to iTunes and rate and recommend our shows, that, that helps grow the audience a bit. Also, um, if you you know, really want to support what we're doing here, you could sign up or subscribe to Bandcamp, and we're doing some brand new exclusive shows for that. And I guess that's it for now. And so look for us at the Billy Go Cav Tavern, folks, and we'll be getting a cheeseburger, cheeseburger, chips, chips. So, all right. On behalf of the amazing Dan Z, thanks for listening, folks, and we'll be back soon, perhaps in Chicago. Till then, take care. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network. <laughs>